This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 15. Judges, chapter 15. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have someone in the back who would be happy to give one of our Bibles to you. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't need to just return it. You can actually take it home with you. We want everyone to have their own copy of the Bible because we believe that the Bible is what it says it is. It is the very inspired Word of God. To read Scripture is to hear our Maker's voice. We're going to be in Judges chapter 15 this morning, so you're going to make your way towards the book of Judges and the big number 15. And as you begin to turn there, one of my good friends is a personal trainer, and we were recently talking, and he said that January through March is his favorite time of years because gym, gyms at that point are packed. It's the most busy time. He says, I make half my money as a personal trainer in the first three months of the year because everyone's coming out of the holidays, and they feel you know, pretty crummy from all the ways they shouldn't have been eating over the holidays. Uh, they made that New Year's resolution. This is the year I'm finally going to get in shape. And so they do that for about three months. And then, and then April comes, and he says that, you know, it just the gyms clear out. He's like, there's this huge drop-off. And he said something that just struck me so much. He says, it's because people often want the benefits of exercise, but after a while, they don't want to make the lifestyle changes necessary to keep exercising. He's like, people want the life of being in shape, but they're unwilling to make the lifestyle changes to get in shape. And I just thought, what a picture that is of how we can treat our spiritual lives sometimes. We want the benefits of a rich spiritual life. We want the peace and security, the strength and confidence, hope and joy that a rich spiritual life offers. We want the benefits. We're not always willing to put in the work. We want the life, but without the lifestyle. But the book of Judges pushes against that. Through all these different characters that we keep meeting and all their various flaws, this book holds up a mirror to us that forces us to come face to face with ourselves and begin to see some of our flaws. And God's not doing that to shame us, but because he loves us. And so he wants to show us things that harm us so that he can heal us. God reveals to rescue. He shows us our sin so that he can lead us deeper into experiencing our Savior. And part of enjoying the life that Jesus has for us comes through facing some things in our lifestyle that we need to change, or to use the more biblical word, that we need to repent of. Repent means to turn away from. That's what this book of the Bible is particularly after in our lives. If you're new with us, we're seeing that the book of Judges is about a people who are stuck. These people are stuck in a cycle that keeps repeating itself. The cycle is that God's people turn away from God, put other things in his place. They get in trouble as a result. They then turn to God, ask for his help to get them out of that trouble. God helps them by sending a judge, which is another word for a deliverer or a savior. The judge saves them, and then things go well for a while, but then the cycle repeats again. And not only does it repeat, but at this point in the book, we see that the cycle keeps getting worse. The people become more and more sinful, and even their judges sent to save them become more and more corrupt. 
Last week, we met the last judge in this book, a man named Samson, and we saw how he was an absolute hot mess. God raised him up and gave him tremendous strength so that he would go and fight the Philistine oppressors and free God's people from their tyrannical rule. But Samson decides that instead of fighting the enemy, he'd rather sleep with the enemy. And so he goes and he marries a Philistine woman. He then makes a bet at his wedding with his wife's Philistine buddies. He says, I'm going to tell you a riddle. If you can't get it, you've got to give me a bunch of clothes. And if you do get it, I'll give you a bunch of clothes. He tells the riddle. They can't get it. But they then put pressure on Samson's new wife to try to find out the secret to the riddle. What's the answer? She is able to finagle Samson into telling her the answer. She tells it to her buddies, and they find out the riddle. Samson loses the bet, and he is enraged. And he goes and he kills guys in another town so that he can take their clothes to go pay off his debt. And then he storms off and goes back home, leaving his wife behind. That's where the story ended last week. And we saw four hard truths that Samson's life shows us about ourselves. God has given us Samson as a mirror so that we can be delivered from denial and begin to name some things in our lives that need to change about our lives. And not just change through our own willpower, but we saw that it is when we see the places that we need help that's meant to direct us to the one who can help. This story about this flawed hero is meant to point us to the ultimate hero, the only true hero, Jesus Christ. And change happens at this intersection of honesty about the places in our lives where we need Jesus, and then understanding more and more about how Jesus meets us in those very places. Chapter 15 picks up right where chapter 14 left off, with Samson storming away and leaving his wife behind. Similar to last week, I'm going to work us through this chapter by going through it in sections, three sections to be specific. Each section is going to give us a hard truth that we need to face in order to experience more of the life that God has for us. And so if you like sermon titles, this is Deliverance from Denial, Part 2. Before we read God's Word, though, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to meet us as we hear His Word read and preached. And I want to encourage you to have a time of prayer before you and God, asking Him to speak to you through this moment. And now if you would please pray also for me, that I be strengthened to speak in a way that's helpful to you and ultimately faithful to our Lord. God, as we come before your word, what we're about to read is not just a moment in history, but there are events that you ordained, and then you inspire them to be written down for us and preserved through us so that we could come to read them at this very moment. So God, we just pray that you would give us humble hearts to recognize the holiness of what we're about to experience. We are about to hear your voice through reading your inspired word. And so Lord, I pray that 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, which inspired these words, that you would now illuminate these words to us. Would you give us eyes to see what you want us to see? Give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. And give us hearts to receive what you want us to receive. We pray this so that Christ might be glorified more in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our first section comes in verses 1 through 5, which says this. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. He said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each of ta- pair of tails. And when he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Here we see Samson coming back after being away a few days to kind of cool down. He comes back and he wants to reconnect with his wife that he left behind. He shows up with a young goat, which I'm guessing that's the ancient equivalent of a bouquet of flowers. Um, He's trying to make an apology. When he returns, he finds out that she's been married off to someone else. His former father-in-law offers her younger sister instead. But in the ancient world, we need to understand that birth order was actually a sign of significance, with the older sibling being the one of greater honor. Now, I'm a younger sibling myself, so it's not meant to throw any shade at us. I'm just trying to give you some cultural context here. We need to understand that what's happening is that the father-in-law is actually insulting Samson. He's saying, here, take something less. He says she's more beautiful, but he's speaking down to Samson, being like, hey, you don't deserve someone who's more honorable. Just take this, this pretty little thing, is what he's saying. He's insulting and demeaning Samson, and so Samson flies off the handle. And he catches 300 foxes. For me, what comes to my mind is that scene in Rocky 2, where Rocky's trying to catch that chicken in his backyard, and like he's trying to run so fast. I'm like, man, if Rocky can't catch a chicken, how on earth is Samson catching 300 foxes? But somehow he does. And this is God, once again, giving him supernatural strength. He catches these 300 foxes, he ties their tails together and puts a fire in between their tails, which, let's just be clear, that's a tremendous act of cruelty. I mean, regardless of what we may think of foxes, like no fox deserves that kind of fate. Maybe a squirrel, but um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This, this is cruelty. But Samson doesn't care. He's enraged. And so he sets these foxes loose, and they go and they burn everything down. Samson's just so angry at what had been done to him. What he fails to see is that if he didn't storm off in anger in the first place, then his wife would have never been given away. He's angry at what had been done to him. But he doesn't see that he actually brought it upon himself. It is so easy to blame others for the consequences that we face because of the choices that we actually made. We can be like, well, this is not fair. This shouldn't have happened. And let's just be clear, this isn't fair to Samson. Like, that that shouldn't have happened to him. 
but it never would have happened to him had Samson not made the choice to give in to his anger and to storm off in a rage. It might have seemed like a little decision to him. A little decision to go and indulge his anger. A little decision to go and just, just go sulk for a while. But here's the hard truth that we need to see. Little decisions can have big consequences. Little decisions can have big consequences. It's not usually the big stuff that takes us down. The big stuff is usually easier to avoid because we can see it coming. It's usually the little decisions. It's usually the little things that we excuse, the little things that we keep indulging, the little ways that we compromise. It's usually the little decisions that can get us into some of the biggest trouble. To be quite candid, my first year of marriage was pretty rough. My wife and I have been best friends since the first day we met. Um, we just naturally enjoy being together. Um, that's how it was all throughout dating, all throughout engagement, and how it's been all throughout our marriage, except our first year of marriage was really tough because when we got married, all of a sudden we started fighting all the time. And I was like, what is this? Like, like what is happening? I thought we were just going to ride off into the sunset holding hands on our horses. We don't even ride horses, but this was in my mind. And, uh, you know, there'd be like little birds chirping like overhead. You know, I mean, that's what the Disney brochure promised me. Where's my happily ever after? You know, I, I just, I couldn't get, get it. And I was convinced there must be some major underlying problem. There must be some big thing that we can just address it and uproot it. Like if we can find that out, we will never fight again. And yet, as I was talking through our struggles with a friend of mine, a friend who'd been married for 30 years, shout out for having friends that are older than you. As we were talking, he just helped me see how there was actually a lot of little decisions I was making that were bringing a whole bunch of big conflict into my marriage. And he gave me this book by a guy named Paul Tripp called What Would You Expect? And this book had a phrase that honestly really revolutionized how he thought not only about marriage, but, but even about life in general. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but essentially what Paul Tripp said was that it is the little moments that shape our lives. We often think it's these big things that happen. But more often it is the little moments, the little things that we're doing continually and regularly. It is the little moments that shape our lives. Lives. I've been looking for something big, but because I was looking for something big, I actually missed out on the little moments that were causing my big problems. Now sometimes, to be clear, there can be big things. Sometimes there is hidden sin or unaddressed trauma that needs to come out and be dealt with before any progress can be made. But for me, and I think often for most of us, it's, it's more of the little moments. So for me, it was the little moments where I was making a decision to overreact instead of remain calm. It was the little moments where I was making a decision to be ungrateful and entitled instead of thankful. It was the little moments where I was making decisions to use sarcasm instead of slowing down and actually trying to have a tone and words of kindness. It was all those little decisions in those mundane, everyday moments that were causing us big problems. Little decisions can have big consequences. So I just want to ask you, are there any decisions that you've been making and treating as little, little things? Any little things that you've been indulging, maybe even excusing? Are there any little things that actually could be causing, either now or later, some big problems in your life? Little decisions can have big consequences.
Our story continues in verses 6 through 13. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? They said, Samson, the son of the Timite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. The Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etan. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? He said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. They said, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Samson had burned the Philistines' crops, and so they retaliated by burning his former wife and her father. They murdered these people in cold blood. Again, we are meant to see here that these Philistines were a brutal people. No wonder God wanted Samson to fight them and free God's people from their barbaric rule. Samson responds by striking these people down. And then he goes and he stays in the rock of Etom. The rock of Edom was a high cliff that overlooked a long valley. It would be used later in 2 Chronicles chapter 11 as a key defensive stronghold for the people of Judah. And so we need to understand that what's actually being indicated to us here is that this is a great place. This is the penultimate place for Samson to finally launch his offensive against the Philistines. Samson going to the Rock of Edom is like the bat signal going up in the sky. It's like, man, something, something big is about to go down. 3,000 men from Judah come out to the cave where Samson is staying. Previously in Judges, we have seen that when this moment happens, when it was either Deborah or Gideon or Japheth, when they were raised up and when they went out into the battle, what have we seen? These, all these people come to join them in the fight. And it was actually in Judges chapter 1, it was the men of Judah, this very same tribe, it was the men of Judah who had been the first to go out and fight for their land. But the men of Judah did not come out on this day to fight this time. No, the cycle is getting worse. This time, the people do not come out to join Samson in the battle. Now they say in verse 11, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? See, at this point, we should realize there's something missing from this judge's cycle that we've been seeing so far in this book. The cycle has been that, again, Israel chases false gods. They become enslaved to foreign nations. They cry out to God for rescue from their oppression. And God sends a judge to rescue them. What's missing this time? This time Israel is not crying out for rescue. This time there is no resistance to their enslavement. Here they are simply taking it as a matter of fact that the Philistines are rulers over us. 
These are people who have adapted and accepted the culture around them. God had told them to drive out the foreign nations. But here instead, they are affirming the right of these foreign nations to rule them. And so Samson is a messed up rescuer. We're meant to see that these people are pretty messed up people. God had sent them a rescuer. And they should have gone and done what God had told them to do. They should have been obedient to the word of God. They should have trusted God to stand by them as they stood up against these Philistines. But here what we're seeing is that they'd rather cut down their own rescuer than risk a confrontation with their oppressors. To help us understand the gravity of what's going on in this moment, commentating on this verse, the late Tim Keller writes this, the Israelites no longer had a recognizable culture of their own, one based on service to the Lord. We can't exaggerate the danger to Israel. The Israelites were on the brink of extinction. Within a couple generations, they could have been completely assimilated into the Philistine nation. You see, friends, here's the hard truth that we need to see that these people are showing us. Becoming culturally indistinct puts you at risk of becoming spiritually extinct. Becoming culturally indistinct puts you at risk of becoming spiritually extinct. What a word for us to hear in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. For us, we do not have physical wars to fight. Jesus actually forbids his followers from taking up the sword on his behalf. John chapter 18, verse 36. We don't fight physical battles. But make no mistake, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Like these people, there are daily choices put before us. Are we going to follow God and what He says? Or capitulate and give in to the ruling powers of our culture? In the past, it's been, I think, somewhat easy to be a Christian in America. Because so much of what the Bible says was also the culturally accepted norms. But that is very much not the case anymore. We don't have to go past the first chapter of the first book of the Bible to find something that is culturally explosive. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created mankind in his image. That's beautiful. We all have equal value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of God. So far, so good. But God made male and female. Right here, on literally the first page of the Bible, in about as clear as anything that can be said, we're told that gender is not chosen by us, it's given by God. And it's binary. There is male and there's female. That is a cultural landmine. And that's not even getting to the second page yet. I could give you a bunch more examples of so many things that this book says that totally go against what our culture tells us to think. Now, I don't think that means that we should go out looking for fights. No, followers of Jesus should be the most loving, generous, respectful, kind-hearted people in the world. And the church should be a safe place for anyone to come, even if they don't believe like we do. 
Because the foundation of our faith is the reality that to be a Christian is to be someone who believes that we are sinners who have been radically loved and forgiven by Jesus. And so that should make us people who radically love others. And so I hope that there are all kinds of people who come here who don't believe what the Bible says. We are a church where it truly is true that everyone is welcome. My prayer is that we've always be known as a compassionate community. We can be kind, compassionate, loving people. And yet there will be moments that come, just like it did for these Israelites, where it is either fear what people might do to us, fear losing a job, fear losing a relationship. There will be moments where it is either fear people or obey the Lord. And if we are scared to stand out, if we want to cut out the commands of God that are currently not culturally fashionable, becoming culturally indistinct puts us at risk of becoming spiritually extinct. As the Apostle Paul said when he was under the threat of death for obeying Scripture, it wasn't his job that was at stake. It wasn't even a friendship that was at stake. It was his life that was at stake. This is what he said. Am I trying now to please people or God? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I know that we are living in challenging times. And there are all kinds of landmines that you have to navigate in your workplaces and in your schools and in your relationships. And I want you to know, like, I'm right there with you. Like, there are, there are relationships that I need to navigate. And I know pastors who have been fined for teaching what Scripture says. There are currently pastors in Europe and in Canada, it's not third world countries, but countries that are very similar to ours, who are currently in jail for preaching what Scripture says about these culturally unacceptable ideas. There are landmines. And we shouldn't be naive and bury our heads and act like that's not a reality. And while I obviously can't speak to all the nuances of what you might be going through and, and, and how to navigate the specific things that you have to face, friends, the underlying principle that should guide every follower of Jesus is the principle that we see these people not doing. What needs to guide us is the Word of God, not the ruling powers of our culture. We are not meant to court people's good opinion, but to live only for God's approval. And when obedience to the Lord puts us in conflict with the world, like it did with these Israelites, when they had to choose between either obeying God or giving in to the Philistines, friends, we have to remember the words of Jesus, who told us in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? If we're not willing to obey what Jesus says, for fear of what people might think, then we have to ask ourselves who is really the Lord of our lives. Becoming culturally indistinct puts you at risk of becoming spiritually extinct. This story concludes in the final section of verses here, verses 14 through 20. It says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the ropes that were on his hand, arms became as flax that had caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, 
With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. He called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow places that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor, is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. We see in this section that Samson is having great success. I think it's fair to say that one guy taking down a thousand, like, that's winning. You know, he's having tremendous success. This is what God had given him to do from his birth. He is using the power God had given him to finally fight these enemies. But things going well is not necessarily an indication that we are doing well. Samson's heart is revealed in verse 18 as he accuses God. Did you see that? He accuses God. Are you just going to let me die? He's accusing God and demanding from God. He's treating God as if God's his butler there to do his bidding. He's angry that God has not given him what he wants when he wants. Friends, that's not a sign of someone's soul being right with the Lord. And how wild is this? Like in verse 18, he starts by recognizing that it's God who gave him victory. Like verse 18 says, you've granted me this great salvation. Like he recognized that like one guy taking on a thousand, that's not something he did. That's something God did. Like he recognizes that God had just delivered him in a miraculous way. But even though God had miraculously saved him, Samson still did not trust God to take care of him. And his prayer reveals his heart. This is a prayer that he's demanding from God in a way that is demeaning to the Lord. And yet despite Samson being in a bad place spiritually, verse 20 tells us he was a leader of Israel for 20 years. Friends, that's meant to get our attention. Because here's what that shows us. Doing well externally does not necessarily mean that we are well spiritually. That's the third hard truth we need to see. Doing well externally does not necessarily mean that we are well spiritually. Samson is doing very well externally. He's he's leading. He's fighting. He's conquering. And verse 14 tells us that even the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. God, God was with Samson in one sense. But the Bible makes a distinction that it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and yet lack the fruit of the Spirit. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, it talks about these gifts of the Spirit that God gives us, these gifts that are supernaturally empowered abilities for the purpose of serving and helping people in the name of Jesus. But in the middle of those two chapters about gifts, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that it's possible to have these gifts and yet lack the character of love. And without that, he says, without that character of love, he says the gifts are worth nothing. So we will see that at times in Scripture, we'll come across men and women who, like Samson, have great gifts, but are actually very shallow in their holiness and in their character. 
doing well externally, even being spiritually gifted, does not necessarily mean that we are well spiritually. I think it's so easy to feel like when we do good things, that's proof of the good people that we are. Look at all these people I serve, and look at all these people who tell me how much I mean to them, and surely God must be pleased with me. We look at our actions for validation. But friends, Scripture says that God looks at our hearts. That's not to say that our actions are unimportant. No, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we're literally created by God to do good works. We have one life to live. So don't waste it living for yourself, but spend it serving God and doing good in His name. But we should never confuse doing things for the Lord as some kind of validation that our soul is actually right with the Lord. The true state of Samson's soul is revealed not through his external successes, but through this private moment of prayer. Makes me think about what an old Puritan preacher by the name of Robert Murray McChain said. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Friends, it is how we are before God. How we are when no one else is looking. That is the true state of our soul. How it is with Him. That's the real indicator of how we're actually doing. And that's not meant to put a guilt trip on us. I think it's actually meant to be an invitation to us. Because you know what this is telling us? This is telling us that God cares more about our relationship with Him than what we do for Him. God wants to see us and love us as His beloved children, not just tools that He picks up and uses. Sure, God wants us to do great things for Him. But more than the stuff we do for Him, God wants us to know Him, to love Him, and then to enjoy Him, and to have a relationship with Him. And so how is your soul with the Lord? How's your relationship with the Father? When you think about how you're doing spiritually, when you consider that, as I hope you often do, like we regularly should be taking thermometer checks of our hearts. We we need these check-ins. Lord, how am I doing, right? We saw this last week. Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any grievous way in me. We should regularly be considering how are we doing spiritually? Not in a way that makes us always looking inward, but a way that takes us outward to the Lord. We should regularly be considering, Lord, how am I doing spiritually? We should regularly be talking about that with one another. We need people in our lives who can encourage us and speak truth to us. But how we answer that question of how we are spiritually, friends, it should have nothing to do with the things we do for the Lord, but everything to do with how we actually are with the Lord. We cannot get this twisted. What we do for the Lord is not necessarily an indicator of how we are with the Lord. It's a hard truth that God wants us to see so that we can experience a richer relationship with Him and more of how He actually wants us to enjoy Him as our Heavenly Father. As we come to a close, I just want to acknowledge that these past couple weeks, we're looking at several hard truths, and um, it's hard. It's hard to look at hard truths. It it has been for me. If you're finding this sermon convicting, just be grateful you don't have to preach it. Um, These things are hard. These things are hard, but, here's, but here's, here's what I love. Here's what's been affecting me, just in my study of these passages. Not only do these passages show us hard truths that we need to face, 
they also show us the heart of God. Because what is God doing in these passages? Samson's a hot mess, chasing all kinds of women he has no business being with, getting angry, demanding, doubting, accusing God of not caring. These people are a hot mess. They're trying to turn Samson in, just giving in to these Philistines. What is God doing? Despite Samson's sin, God keeps strengthening Samson to take on the Philistines. He won't let Samson die at the many times where he could have died. He won't let Samson die at the hands of his enemy. Because even though these people were sinful people, God still wanted them to be a people who knew and could taste and experience his salvation. And so even in Samson's sinful prayer, God answers that prayer and gives him the water that verse 19 says does revive Samson. And so friends, what we're seeing here is that despite Samson's sin and despite these people's sin, what we're seeing here is that God is not turning his back on them. What this passage is showing us, it's really showing us the theme of the whole Bible. That God is a God of mercy and grace. He is the God of never giving up love for flawed and failing people, for the sinful and the rebellious. And we have something so much better than just water coming out of a rock to show us that. We have Jesus, who said in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, Jesus is the water that God offers for our sin-thirsty souls. And on the cross, He was broken wide open as He took on the judgment for sin that we deserve. All of God's justified wrath for our sin, for my sin, for your sin, if you would believe in Jesus. All of God's justified, eternal, hellfire wrath descended on Christ on that cursed tree. And He was broken wide open and died and laid in a tomb. And a stone was rolled over His grave. And then three days later, that stone, it wasn't cracked. It was taken away. And Jesus emerged from the grave to prove that He is the living water of salvation who can revive anyone who comes to Him. For anyone who comes to Jesus, He is the water of forgiveness for those thirsty from a burden of guilt. He is the water of cleansing for those thirsty from a stain of shame. He is the water of healing from those thirsty from a deep hurt that you carry on your soul. Jesus is comfort for our sadness. He is hope for our discouragement. He is courage for our fears. He is light for our darkness. He is strength in our weakness. He is clarity in our confusion. You see what I'm trying to tell you is that He is the way for those who have lost their way. He is the peace that goes beyond our understanding. He's the joy in the midst of our sorrows. In the living water of Jesus, we find ourselves able to be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Jesus is the living water of revival for any weary soul that comes to Him for drink. 
And friends, he's not just a trickle. He's not just a trickle. No, as we drink of him, he said he becomes like a flowing river of living water washing over our hearts. And so as we read stories like this, and we see our sin exposed through the sin of Samson and these people, friends, we're to see ourselves exposed but also loved. We are to see the sin we need to turn from, but also the Savior we can turn to. As Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Friends, change happens. Breakthrough occurs. Repentance takes place when we confront the hard truths that we need to face and then believe by faith in the deep, wide, never giving up, always and forever love of God, His everlasting kindness shown to us in Jesus. And so as we bring all this down in for a landing, what in your lifestyle do you need to repent from in order to experience more of the life that Jesus offers? What are the hard truths that you might need to face and stop denying so that you can start experiencing and receiving more of God's extension of mercy to you in Christ? Change happens at this intersection of us being honest about the sin that we need to turn from and having faith in the merciful God that we can turn to. May God lead us in not just desiring the life that Jesus has for us, but pursuing a lifestyle of repentance so that we can actually experience the life that Jesus has for us. May God lead us away from the things that harm us. And may He take us to these streams of living water in Christ. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.